Welcome to the Operate Podcast, where we give you a behind-the-scenes look at company building from the perspective of the builders themselves. This is how we operate. Welcome to the Operate Podcast. I'm Kerry Ransom. Today's episode is sponsored by Hunt Club, a new category of search firm that leverages the power of relationships and referrals to find you the best talent for your company. Their technology transforms thousands of subject matter experts into the world's most powerful talent network, and they currently have about 10,000 trusted industry leaders that refer top talent nationwide to exciting positions like yours. Feel free to message me for more info, or you can go to huntclub.com and tell them that Carrie sent you. I'm excited to have William Fickman with me on the show today. Before we get to hear from him, though, let me tell you a little bit about William. He is the founder and chief strategy officer of Amazia, a leading provider of services to brands who sell almost exclusively on Amazon. They work with these companies to help them protect and grow their Amazon business. And they do some really interesting things that they'll monitor for removing unauthorized sellers as an example. We'll talk much more today about the topics that sellers are, are dealing with in the Amazon ecosystem and something that maybe isn't always so obvious, but things around control and trust and other factors that I think uh, have emerged in this really Amazon heavy, as I would call it, uh, commerce world. Amazia has helped companies deliver hundreds of millions of dollars of sales on Amazon across dozens of brands. So he's seen a lot of different categories, a lot of different seller types. And I'd be really interested to talk to William about the patterns that he sees. I'm sure when he gets pitched a new company, he probably has a pretty good process for how he determines uh, what their issues are, what opportunities might exist as well. And so we'll talk about that too. He's a SoCal native and he's also built his company here in Southern California, which I always appreciate and love. William, it's great to have you here on the podcast today. Thanks, Kerry. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So I gave a brief intro into Amazia, but I always love to have my guests sort of tell the story in, in their words. So let's start first with a customer story, if that's okay. Tell me about one of your customers and kind of the, the story of how you help them really improve their their life on Amazon. Yeah, it, 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 it's actually the founding story of uh, how Amazia made its pivot and, and got into the brand protection business, but we were selling on Amazon for probably a decade before that. Okay. It's just a pure reseller, one of many, you know, not really offering a ton of value. We had this brand, it was a eyelash mascara company. And um, they had uh, come to us, uh, I was introduced through a friend of mine through the entrepreneurs organization. Okay. You're, familiar, you're familiar with this. Yeah. So we're, we're both, she's a member in Australia, I'm a member in LA. Um, I was introduced to her as kind of the Amazon guy. And so um, we started talking and it was like, look, my, my products on Amazon. Um, so her story is, she was pitching Nordstrom. Her and her VP of sales fly into the US to pitch Nordstrom. They walk into a buyer's meeting and in the first five minutes, the buyer pulls up Amazon and goes, look, ladies, your product's $50 retail. You want us to retail it for 50 bucks, but it's selling on Amazon for $25. How, how do you expect us to ever compete with Amazon and carry this in our store and get repeat business or first time business if Amazon's at half price delivered to your door the next day? 
And so they get kicked out of this meeting. They flew from Australia for 16 hours for a five minute meeting with a Nordstrom buyer just to get kicked out. So she's bummed. She's like, William, I don't know how to fix this. I don't know who these people are. They're clearly selling my product and, and I don't know what to do. And they, it may not be even legit product. It may be counterfeit, sure. it may be used, it may be um, you know, stolen merchandise that we often see. And at the time I was like, you know, I think this is a big problem for a lot of brands like you. Will you let me clean this up for you? And if I clean it up for you, can I be your exclusive retailer on Amazon? She said, yeah, at this point I'm dead. If I can't get into Nordstrom, I have no business. So do whatever you gotta do. So we, we went at it just kind of with some tactics that I thought would work. It took us about three months, but we cleaned it up and we got full control of her products on Amazon. Um, our store was the only one selling it. So now we could guarantee that every unit going out the door was retail perfect. It was authentic. Right. It was fresh. It wasn't sitting in a hot warehouse for two years and spoiling. Um, and it wasn't stolen. And it, you know, it was all the things a consumer would want. And most importantly, the price point was where it needed to be at full retail of MSRP. Her minimum advertised pricing policy was respected. And then long story short, she then went back into Nordstrom's, Bloomingdale's and Dillard's um, continue to grow her business and then ended up selling the private equity and exiting. Yeah. And so all that would not have been possible if she had not taken control of her Amazon business. She wouldn't have gotten into Nordstrom at that moment. And then she wouldn't have gotten to Bloomingdale's if she wasn't in Nordstrom. So it was all kind of a, a chain effect, but that that's kind of one, one of, that is the most famous story I, I could tell you because that's literally how Amazia started. Then we did that with a couple more brands. And before we knew it, there was a whole business model of, hey, this is there's a lot of brands that need this help. Today, we do the same thing in automotive and sports and you know, virtually every category you can imagine has the same issues. Yeah. Um, we even talk to canned tuna brands. I mean, canned tuna has the same problems that high-end mascara has. Incredible. And I think there's a lot to, to unpack here. So that's a great story. It, it sounds like, you know, the first thing I'd love to just jump into, it, it sounds like the buyer at, Nordstrom is keenly aware now of this, as I would call it, showrooming effect. Which... This, is, this is five years ago. So the story I just told you is from 2015. It, sorry, mm -hmm. this, is, uh, this is end of 15. So we're now six years, right? Mm -hmm. So today, that, the buyer was aware six years ago. You can yes. imagine their awareness today. Exactly. And I mean, obviously during COVID too, that you know those people weren't even able to go into Nordstrom. So you know, showrooming is, I may go on Nordstrom to Nordstrom.com to look, but I'm still going to probably compare it to Amazon. So let's go, you know, two directions here. One on the retail, the, the branded retail side. So you have people like Nordstrom and Bloomingdale's and those, you know, how do you see that they're, they're dealing with this? I think those that have a good online presence will, will survive. I mean, for example, my, my wife's an avid Nordstrom shopper. All of it is virtually online, but there's a lot of online in person. So it'll be, you know, it'll be something bought online, but picked up in store. It'll be bought online, but returned in store. And when she goes to return something in store, guess what? She always ends up buying something else. Yeah, it's, it's um, the omni-channel experience. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah exactly. increasing her value, yeah. I think the retailers that do that well, obviously, I think survive. We may see the stores, the real estate change. I don't think Nordstrom needs such a big store anymore. It may become the size of an Apple store, maybe, just carrying the essentials. And, and even today, you see Nordstrom, there's lots of things where they go, oh, I don't, you know, let's say they have the medium size on the shelf, but, you know, everybody else who's a small or a large, we'll ship it to you, you'll have it tomorrow. Okay, cool. I like how this looks. 
but I, it's not in my size. I'll have it tomorrow. Or they have the black and the white option on the floor, but I want red. No problem. We'll ship you the red tomorrow. So you go from not having to merchandise so much stuff in one store. I think we'll see stores start to shrink. Internet commerce, obviously. Um, and logistics are getting better and better. That's right. You know, where we could rely on almost same day delivery today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, or you'll see, I mean, in, in my neighborhood, they just opened a, it's almost like a Nordstrom service center mm, that I'm, allows for returns. I think you can do pickup. I'm not, I think you can do tailoring. And so the interesting thing is they've got this center in between two Nordstrom stores at two nearby malls and probably equidistant to those. And I'm, I'm sure they just somehow figured out and it's maybe it's concept, but a fascinating, you know, just that you brought up Nordstrom because I think there is some experimentation or shrink the, the retail footprint, have all of the merchandise in an industrial warehouse nearby because the logistics can, can get it. So it's, it's, I think it's a fascinating time um, particularly as you as you talk about omnichannel, so let's go to the branded product side. So you've got your entrepreneur who had the mascara business. How aware are folks like her I mean, five years ago, and I guess today, of what's happening on Amazon or some of the other marketplaces? If they're not there, if they're as, as your point, their product might be getting sold, they don't even know about it. So how you know how aware are they, and then how are they figuring this out? You mean you mean for those brands whose product is on Amazon, but the founders are don't aren't even aware of what's going on in the market? Yeah, there, there's probably two camps of people that we come across. There's definitely founders that are, oh my God, this is a problem. Who's getting my stuff? Why are they here? And those are really our customers because they they have the, the care for, I got to get this under control. I don't want the market deciding how my brand is represented, merchandise, sold, packaged yes. uh, on my behalf. Uh, and then there's the camp of people that are like, oh, those, you know, I, I don't sell on Amazon, so I don't know what's going on there. Well, just because you don't sell on Amazon doesn't mean your product's not being sold. Exactly. Out. Exactly. We always challenge and, and say, well, do you care if your product's sold on Amazon? Do you care if your re- reviews are terrible? Do you care if people are repackaging and bundling your product in ways that you didn't intend for it to go to market? Mm-hmm. And, and in there, we'll have people that obviously care. And we have people that are just free market, sell as much stuff as I can. I don't really care. Um, and some change over time. Like the other customer story I could tell you, we had an auto a auto. Um, accessory and so they again they were pitching napa auto parts same story you just replace nordstrom's with napa and it's the same thing napa buyer says hey we'll put you we love your product we want to put it in our 300 stores but how are we going to compete with amazon it's a 300 dollars product that's on amazon for 160 how are we going to compete and so then they get the awareness it's like when they stumble on the problem or the closed door in their face then they're like okay we got to solve this problem yeah. uh but in, but a lot of times we're highlighting that awareness we're I mean, we're, we're known for like, we'll screenshot the Amazon situation or we'll make a video presentation of like, hey, Carrie, here's your brand on Amazon. Here's what's going on. Look at this. You may not see this. And we'll send that over to them and say, hey, do you want to talk? This is what we fix. Like we solve these problems if you care. And they um, have different options, right? I mean, one option is to embrace Amazon as a channel and just be much more in control of it. The other is to try to completely be off 
Amazon, but I mean, how pra practical is that even today? You can't be, I mean, if you're a, a brand that at all has, you know, a meaningful brand, let's say doing at least a couple million, let's say 5 million or more in revenue, you got some retailers, you got some distributors, yes. you are on Amazon, whether you like it or not, your products are, are on Amazon. Um, unless you're a really tightly controlled, you know, DTC brand, where you don't sell to anybody except a consumer. Even in those cases, we find that people buy with stolen credit cards and resell in the Amazon market. And so either way, product finds its way, even in the most tightly controlled DTC brands. Um, so can you keep it, can you keep it off or is it just cat and mouse that you're constantly chasing if you are that example like you just shared? Yeah, it's ultimately cat and mouse, but a very professional game of cat and mouse. So we are professional whack-a-molers. It's uh -huh. like playing whack-a-mole, but you know, I always give customers the example. It, it's like highway patrol. People are speeding every day, but you can police it and control it. And, you know, as long as you're limiting how many people are dying because of speeding on a freeway, that's really the KPI you're measuring. But people mm -hmm. are going to speed every day. They're going to break the road rules every day. But if you're not enforcing, you know, guess what happens when, when, when we see a cop, we slow down on the freeway. Um, and so if you're not enforcing, we know that the behavior increases and that people sell more and do funny things and, and all that. Um, so I always think obviously a brand controlled is better than not controlled. Of course. And I'll say it's because Amazon is the biggest catalog out there. Like today, even though your customer may not be buying on Amazon, they're using Amazon as a catalog for education. I was, uh, I was at HomeGoods uh, recently, you know, HomeGoods? Yes. And some guy was in the aisle buying um, something. It was like a $10, um, I don't know, something really like a spatula, just something really not that important. Okay. And I walk by him and I look on his phone and he's reading reviews on Amazon. And I was like, wow, this guy's buying like a spatula and he's going to spend 10 minutes reading reviews to find the absolute best spatula that he wants. Mm -hmm. And so if you're that, you know, if you're OXO or you're whatever brand of, of spatula, your reviews matter because, sure. and, and, and those reviews are influenced by who sells your stuff on Amazon. Because if somebody's selling a bunch of returns on Amazon and ruining your reviews, that's affecting your off Amazon business. Yeah, well, and it, it's even layered deeper because I may choose in that aisle to buy it right now at HomeGoods, or I may choose to buy it right now at Amazon. And I'm really just using HomeGoods as a way to touch it, feel it, and make sure it is the one that I want, but I like the Amazon return policy better. I like the Amazon rewards policy better. I like the habit of it, whatever it may be. I mean, that it, it just is, it's a fascinating time where you have these habits forming, reforming, you know, I think over a hundred million new e-commerce shoppers came online in the last year. So it's, it's a really interesting time. Yeah. What we saw last year, and, and we hear this sometimes from our brand owners, usually, no offense, they're a little bit older, they're you know, maybe late 50s, 60s, they, they've not been online shoppers at all, they've run their you know, vastly brick and mortar business for 30 years, and we often hear, oh, I hate Amazon, I would never go on Amazon, I don't shop on Amazon, and I won't sell to customers that go on Amazon. Those are exactly the people that we've seen pivot in the last year because they found their, you know, if they owned a, a chain of salons, and all of a sudden they couldn't do service or sell in-service product, those are the people that started to turn around. They had inventory on their shelves and went, hey, can I sell a few bottles of shampoo on Amazon because my salons are closed. If I own a 20 chain salon of business, 
and, and I have zero revenue coming in right now, I am desperate and looking to sell wherever I can. That's right. And so that, that, you know, salon chain owner who may be 60 years old, who may have been doing this business for 30 years, all of a sudden found her way going, wow, I got to liquidate some of these shampoo bottles or I'm, I got, I'm going to, I'm going to die. Um, so, so that's exactly who we see. And now what'll happen is that let's call her Sally, 60 year old Sally, who, who was e-commerce shopping adverse all of a sudden goes, oh, this is cool. Look at this. I could buy this mascara on Amazon and I could buy this and I could buy this. And what do you know? She'll spend the next decade, you know, or 20 years, however long she's going to live shopping on Amazon. So we, we see a lot of that, that I think Amazon is still, it's grown a lot, but there's still a boom coming because you just had so many users sign up. Uh, and these users are the ones that actually have some money to spend. Uh -huh. um, you know, they're not the 21 year old users. There's 50, 60 year old people that have life savings built up that are going to realize this is cool. I can buy anything I want. It shows up like today. Exactly. Let's, let's pivot uh, a little bit. So I'm going to start a business on Amazon, let's say, or let's, let's even say I'm going to just start a business selling online. Don't do it. Don't do it. Where, where should I start? Should I start on Amazon or should I try to start going directly to an audience? I, I guess it depends on the type of product. So we got to, you know, there's a big world of product, a, uh, barbecue grill is going to be different than a mascara. Sure. And so you got to think of, you know, that will guide, but the first decision is, do I sell to Amazon or on Amazon? Mm -hmm. Do I go, you know, sell to vendor central as a first party? Do I sell third party on my own store? If I'm going to do my own store, am I going to run it myself? Or am I going to hire someone like Amazia or another provider to, to kind of run it for me? Uh, and then the next decision is, you know, do I do fulfilled by Amazon or not? And I always say, if you're not fulfilled by Amazon, you're really not selling on Amazon because that's, that's what the prime customer expects. That's how prime shoppers shop. I won't buy anything that's not prime, for example. I don't know how you shop on yeah, Amazon. I'm, I'm that way. Yeah, you probably won't buy from a ABC store one, two, three with 50% feedback because you know it's going to be a hassle if you got to return something. Um, but prime, no problem, right? So the next decision is, do we go prime or not? Uh, which is being fulfilled by Amazon or not. So that's why I said, you know, barbecue versus mascara. Mascaras, you absolutely go prime, you ship it to Amazon. That's the way to go. Barbecues, you may not be able to, you know, the, the economics of the freight may, you know, make it not viable to ship a bunch of stuff to Amazon's warehouse just to ship it again, again to a consumer. The margin may not be there to do. And mm -hmm. so you may be forced to, you know, be not prime in, in that area. So it depends on the product, I would say. And then, you know, selling e-commerce like a Shopify versus Amazon, I would say it's both, you know, you, you definitely want to be in both channels, but realize that they're very different skill sets. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, selling on Amazon, which is all we do is totally different. I'm sure than selling on Shopify, even like Google AdWords to drive traffic to Shopify is a very different skill set than sponsored products to drive traffic on inside of Amazon. Great, and, great perspective there. Yes. And you got and you got to have specialties in that. So if you think you could just, you know, throw up a store and do it all yourself, no way. I mean, we have 50 employees doing just Amazon and we don't even know all of Amazon perfectly well. We, we know a lot really well, but there's lots of other disciplines inside of Amazon that we, that I'll be the first to say, we don't know how to do that. And so it just gives you the, the perspective of there's a lot to know. And I can't imagine one owner with, you know, a couple employees figuring out all that stuff. Yes. What, what, in your mind, what are the early indicators that it's working? 
right? You I mean, I'm sure you get, you're, you're still probably even more so now the Amazon guy. So somebody, Hey, I, I think I need to, I need some help. I'm on here. What are kind of for you, the early indicators that this is yeah. working and has, has some legs to it or, or isn't the same thing. I mean, the same thing we've measured for a million years of commerce, right? Sales. I mean, am I selling stuff? Am I selling more this week than I did last week? Am I selling more this month than last month? Am I selling more this year than last year? Um, and, you know, average sale price. Am I finding ways to increase my average sale price? Are customers buying a mascara and a lip liner at the same time? Or are they just buying the mascaras? Um, so that that's maybe one area. And then Amazon has a specific, you know, I'll geek out a little bit, but it's called a, a new to buy ratio. So it's a, it's a ratio of, customers that have bought your stuff for the first time, uh, which is really good because you want to be picking up a lot. Like if you're a consumed product, like a mascara or like a shampoo, you want to be your vitamin. You want to be picking up a lot of new to buy customers because those are the ones that are going to come back and repeat. Now, if you're selling barbecues, you know, maybe it's okay. Maybe you buy a barbecue and then that person comes back and buys a fridge or buys your smoker or buys your other accessory, but it's not consumable like mascara and shampoo and vitamins. Mm -hmm. So I'd say the other indicator is the new to buy ratio. You want that to be good, but just, you know, very simply, am I making sales? Are sales growing? Are they trending up? Would so be if let's say they were, and then they stopped, because I think that happens a lot. You have people that get that early signal and then maybe they either plateau or they start to taper. What, what you typically see is the causes there. Yeah, there's always a very definite and precise reason of why sales fell off. Diagnosing it's the heart, right? It's like a car that won't start. There's always a reason why the car is not starting. It's just a matter of figuring out which part of the car is not working. Um, and so is it the ignition switch? Is it the starter? Is it the you know, battery? You know, is it out of gas? There, there's various reasons, right? Same thing in the Amazon world. Is it, did I just get unauthorized reseller? For example, we, we have a brand uh, we represent they also sell to Walmart and twice a year, they'll run a huge sale with Walmart. And what happens is all there's these, have you heard of these like, they're like these like groups of stay at home moms essentially that have like the scanner gun and they run through Walmart, they scan every item and it instantly tells them if they can make a profit on that item selling it on Amazon. And then they buy up the whole shelf and that's how they get inventory. And, and, and then they'll run around to every Walmart store in town, buy up all that inventory. So this brand that runs a sale with Walmart will eventually get 20 or 30 people that buy up all this inventory at a sale. So, so it's a um, voice over IP phone, uh, retail at hundred bucks, but it'll sell at Walmart for like 49 bucks for a sale. Well, these people buy up all this inventory at 49 bucks and all of a sudden they're selling it on Amazon. And so if you're selling on Amazon and all of a sudden your competition is people that have bought it liquid at a liquidated price on Walmart, your sales will plummet. And so you're going, what's going on? Well, you just simply look at the buy box. It did more sellers enter the market. Are people competing with you suddenly on price? Um, and, and that would be maybe one reason That's that sales. Yeah. The other thing could be, I mean, Amazon changes its algorithm all the time. So your mm -hmm. content may have been erased and you're not ranking for any keywords like you used to. It's the same story, right? Like 10 years ago, you, you would hear, you know, I had page one on Google and all of a sudden my, my website's not showing up on Google. Same concept. The, the algorithm changed or you got, you know, punished for something you did wrong and uh, you're now not showing up. Or 
Is there new competition in the marketplace? Has a Chinese seller completely knocked off your product and is selling the same spatula you sell, but at a third of the price that actually looks good and has great reviews and, and all that. So that could be a reason. Um, or are, is your, do you have product issues? Are your reviews terrible and you're starting to accumulate really bad reviews because your, your handle on your spatula falls off nine out of 10 times. And the customers are saying that and the Amazon algorithm will pick that up and stop displaying your product because they don't want people buying crap. They want people to come back and buy good things on Amazon. Amazing. Hey, here's a, here's a random question. How many of your employees have come to work for Amazia, learned all this knowledge to then say, okay, I think I can go launch a product on Amazon. I'm going to go do it because I mean, that knowledge is really valuable. It's like kind of like learning the early days of SEO. Yeah. So we're actually not, see within Amazon, there's product launching and product management are two different things. We are not good at product launching because, and I'll answer the question on the employees, but product launching as a business requires a whole different skill set, usually based around reviews and unfortunately review manipulation. And, you know, you hear about fraudulent reviews and all these other tactics, the brands that could launch that really are an unknown brand and suddenly rise to the top. They're doing a lot of black hat tricks to do that. There's no other easy way, or they're pouring a ton of money and losing a lot of money in advertising for that to happen. Um, so we don't deal, we don't deal at all in product launch. We yeah. only manage real brands that have real, you know, omni-channel businesses mm -hmm. where they want the Amazon component managed well. Um, so we've had no employees that go and launch their own product. I did have an employee, I don't know, six years ago who was effectively our general manager that in the last three months of working for us, set up a completely copycat business down the street oh. and then gave notice and left. We ended up in a lawsuit for a while, yeah. but the, the story ends with um, him being taken away by ambulance from a panic attack from his own business and going out of business within two years. Oh, that's too bad. But yes, I mean, that, that, I think that's, that's a, a risk, I guess, but, but um yeah, I just, I mean, there's incredible knowledge that I think you, you uh, have that I grew up in retail and I think the, the change to that is just so profound in the last decade that again, to your point, most people that were physically rooted in a place and used to the routine of we come here and we open the store and people will come in and we have to do some amount of local community. I mean, even email marketing became a, a first lift, but this is brave new world. Yeah. But let's not get too comfortable with Amazon. You know, same thing like Amazon's here. It's great. It's big, but it will not look the same in 10 years. Mm -hmm. it, will, it will not be the same business. It may not be here in a hundred years. It may be something else we haven't even considered, but you know, Amazon today, you know, there's a time where JC Penny was hot. That's right. That's right. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, we've seen obviously Target have a really good year. Um, Walmart continues to not shy away and they're there. So you have these big companies like that. How, how do you think about Amazon relative to, I mean, they're, they're the, the big, big, big player now, but how do, how do you think about this evolving ecosystem? Yeah, we've been watching. So we've been a marketplace seller for 16 years now. So we've been we've been literally from at least 2009. We've been 
actively and eagerly looking for the next marketplace to differentiate from Amazon since 2009. Um, I I think it's just starting to sizzle up now. And that was mostly driven by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. The fact that Amazon's fulfillment networks were overstrained where consumers went to other, like I couldn't get toilet paper on Amazon. So I went to buy it at Walmart. Now I bought it at walmart.com. And now I know, oh, this is pretty good. This is not as clunky as the Walmart brick and mortar shopping mm-hmm. experience. Actually, mm-hmm. walmart.com is actually a really nice, as I would say, as clean and nice as a shopping experience as, as Amazon but the consumer's not used to going there. So I think we're just starting to sizzle up now. Um, you know, we're starting to make investments into selling on Walmart and you know, some of these other channels. Uh, really Walmart and Shopify would be the, the other two channels mm-hmm. that I see are big today, but they're still miles, miles, miles ahead, uh, behind Amazon is the reality. So you know, from what I hear of you know, people in the space, maybe they're getting five to 20% of the revenue that they're getting on Amazon. Mm-hmm. So if they're, if they're doing 10 million on Amazon, they're maybe doing half a million of sales on Walmart, which is almost at a level where it's like, it's hard to put people and resource behind to really develop and build. Cause it's like, you know, why I'd rather, if I dump that effort into Amazon, I grow 10 times more, That's right. you know? but you, know, you can't put all your eggs in one basket. So that's the reason you, you differentiate, but yeah. So there are other markets. They're just, they're miles behind at this point. Yeah. And we'll see, I mean, we, you know, we're seeing some really interesting things in other countries, obviously like social commerce or, or the real time kind of mobile enabled what, what you and I would probably call QVC uh, for the next gen and, and some of these flash sale type of opportunities. So it's, yeah, there are always going to be these experiments happening. And I think it's, it's for that entrepreneur or business owner, how do you allocate your time and energy there. Yeah. I haven't seen social shopping, I'd say really explode yet. Have you like, have you bought actively bought anything no. through a Facebook QVC thing or Instagram? But I'm not the target, right? I think, you know, we're, and I don't know that it, it I mean, here in the States, it's just starting to yeah. um, get it, get some experimentation. I would say, I mean, there's, there's a little bit of traction, but I'm seeing in obviously in Asia, it has been huge for the last several years in Europe. It's starting to, there are some people starting to tick up, but there, there's some activity for sure. And I don't know. I mean, I can't relate as a consumer. I look at my kids and say, maybe, maybe this is the way they're going to get inspired. But I, I have seen a huge number of purchases made in my household through things like Instagram, oh. direct to consumer ads. Who's buying it? Your kids? or my wife, where they get targeted with a product that just speaks right. to them and they say, I'll try that. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know what you mean. Um, it, it could be a younger, I mean, I'm, I'm 36 and I've never bought really anything in social. So it could be even young, you know, it could be like 20s, I don't know, teens mm-hmm. that, that are doing it. But I, I'm guessing your, your wife is close to your age, probably yes. not 21, mm-hmm. um, but clearly she's, she's you know, buying on, on direct to consumer. And I guess now that I think about it, my wife has too. There's absolutely things she's bought. They're usually beauty related or mm-hmm. health related. Yes. Um, that are being sold, you, you know, DTC. but somehow that, you know, it speaks to, it speaks to them in a really specific way. And they go, Oh yeah, I'll, I, I, I was looking for that. Or I was thinking about that or I'll try that. Right. So they, there's definitely some amazing kind of targeted commerce like that, that I think is particularly in the last 
year. People have had more time to scroll and oh yeah, be there. And I think that's been a big, big driver. Screen time is definitely up. I'd love to get like a statistic out of like Apple of what average screen time has gone in mm -hmm. the last year. Yes. I don't think they publish it anywhere, do they? I don't know that they do. That's a, that would be a good, you know, I think we can get it individually, but yes, I think we, and, and I'm sure there's some good data out there. I haven't seen any recent. If you're looking ahead for you, I mean, you gave a couple indicators with sort of Shopify, Walmart. I mean, if you look ahead for the next couple of years for you and you think about we're coming, you're starting to come out of COVID, are people going to come back and go to brick and mortar? There's kind of all these open questions. How are you processing and trying to forecast what's ahead for you in the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean, things will be back. I, I had lunch indoors at a restaurant yesterday. Um, I went on a little trip a couple of weeks ago to Orange County. I had lunch indoors the whole weekend. Um, so um, absolutely, things will be back. Uh, it'll be a little different though. I think there'll definitely be a lean on, on online and Amazon in particular, because some of these retailers who, who've now out of desperation come to the marketplace to sell, will realize, oh, this is a whole new channel. And some of them will get good at it and stick and some of them will fail and be out because they couldn't figure it out. Um, but we'll definitely see a lot more um, sellers selling stuff on Amazon for sure, which brings more inventory to the marketplace. So that, that's Amazon's whole strategy. That's why they have 2 million sellers like us is that each one of those sellers brings a big inventory to the market, to the digital swap meet and sets up a shop, right? So now all of a sudden you have way more people coming to the marketplace with their stuff to sell. Um, it's, it's kind of a giant digital swap meet with way more vendors. Interesting. And I mean, they've, they've obviously exploited that network effect that most of the most valuable companies of this era of the economy globally are network effect businesses. Yeah. Most people don't realize that like they, they go, well, what if Amazon just stopped allowing third-party sellers tomorrow? You'd be dead. Well, more than half of Amazon's sales are third-party. So mm -hmm. I think Amazon would be dead if more than half of its inventory disappeared. Um, and the selection, you know, that's how you get the earth's biggest selection of every product and shape and color under the sun is because you get millions of people bringing their inventory. That's right. Well, so I love I that, oh, go ahead. That'll grow. I mean, Shopify is obviously going to grow well, you, you started with the fact there, like we have statistics of like how many new businesses are starting on Shopify. Uh, I think all of that's gonna continue to grow. E-commerce e is definitely gonna continue to grow. There's no doubt. It was growing already, like yes. pandemic aside, it was that's growing right. already. So it, it just got accelerated a little bit. Exactly. Well, I have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to the show as you think about when you, and I, I love that you're part of EO, which I think is, you, you probably are a huge fan of, I would imagine. Yeah, as you, over a decade. Yeah, amazing. If you, as you think about the skills that you had when you started your company and, and versus today, like how would you think about your entrepreneurial journey from, from kind of that skills and, and development standpoint? Um, oh, well, when I started, I was 19, so. You know, at 19, you just can't have too many skills, right? Like, <laughs> realistically, haven't had a lot of world experience or like people experience or like job experience. I really never worked too much for anyone else but myself. So, um, I think one of the biggest skills you get comfortable with over time is I, I would say seeing up 
seeing opportunity and diagnosing the business. Like I'm, I'm at a point, I had something going on in the business today where something was not working. And with one glance, I could tell exactly what was wrong um, and be able to either fix it or guide the team or coach up the team or train the team of, hey, here's how, here's why this problem, here's why the car's not starting. And it's exactly for this reason. And if you just check this thing every time, you will have caught this problem. So I think you, you get better and more comfortable at your business of spotting the problems, but also spotting, spotting the opportunities and being able to really confidently say, there's a market here. There's a market. There's customers. I can make money in this. I could repeat this, all those things. Now, sometimes that could be dangerous because the ego takes over and you think you're right. And then you make big bets on the wrong things. Uh -huh. uh, so I think the other thing is you, you learn to scale your bets, start really small, like take risks, but those risks, if you fail on are meaningless, right? Yeah. Like take little risks and it's like playing blackjack, right? Like invest five bucks. If you win, invest 10. If you win, invest 20, but don't invest your house if you can't lose it. So, so you just start small and scale up, you know, as, as you go, I would say, but, but that's one of the main skill sets is being able to see opportunity, know which ones to bet on, you know, escalate your bets, mm -hmm. hopefully win, take, take home some, some reward. Absolutely. As you think about the gaps in your skills, the things that you either don't do well or you just don't want to do, how, how has that changed over time? Um, I'm a doer by nature. So I think today I, I still even struggle today. I'm sure it drives lots of employees here crazy and my team crazy is I, I jump in with my hands and I want to fix things myself. And mm -hmm. so the main skill set is, okay, that'll work at a certain size. But I, I realize, you know, if we're going to grow and be a, a giant company one day, that's not going to work. I'm not going to be able to jump in and fix the car every time it breaks. Um, so, so that's still a skill set I'm working on even today is being able to teach and train at every opportunity instead of just jump in and fix mm -hmm. um, and build a team of, of people that are better than me. And in many aspects in our business, there are people here that do things a lot better than, than I ever could have if I even tried. Um, so I don't know that, does that answer the question? Sure. I, I think that's, yeah, that's great perspective. And sometimes we have to have somebody hold that mirror up to help us see that sometimes we have to mature a little bit to see that. So uh, I think that's great, great perspective. And, and I think advice, if, if you want to keep it small, then you have to keep doing everything. Uh, if, if you see a, an ability to scale it at some point, you have to start giving things away or, or you're, you're going to break. Right. So that's, I think it's great advice. Yeah. The other thing is don't get carried away scaling. I mean, we've definitely made that mistake in, in our business is, you know, we've sometimes scaled too fast. Mm -hmm too fast, over-invested, tested too many things at the same time that they got diluted and we couldn't do any one thing really well. So sometimes that, that's a problem too, is tr getting ahead of yourself and scaling too quickly where you, you're not giving enough time to digest, measure the results and double down your bets. You just have, you know, you're running around the whole casino putting $5 on black on every table, and, but then you're not watching the tables where you lost and why you lost and what's going on and which bets you need to double or increase. Um, so sometimes that's a mistake is, is doing too many new things at the same time. Mm -hmm. What keeps you still energized and excited about the business? Um, I, I think it's just the, the dynamic of it. The fact that the, uh, what's it? The, uh, 
the dog running behind the the dog running behind you, like there's someone always running behind you, whether it be Amazon itself, a customer, a competitor, um, yourself. I mean, there's there's always someone running behind to get you. And so it's always about, you know, running a little bit faster to, to, to keep ahead. Um, but the, the, what I mean by that is the world's changing, like Amazon's changing, logistics are changing, suppliers are changing, everything's in a constant state of flux. And it's like just keep keeping up with all that and evolving with the times is is a fun challenge in, in a way. Sure. I mentioned when I did the intro, you you started the company. You're you're based here in SoCal. Why why do you feel like there's so many e-commerce related businesses here? Because of the sunshine, Carrie. Um, no, really, because of the sunshine. I mean, you have probably. Um, you know, you have lots of good institutions, universities, or you're a USC guy, so you got UCLA, USC, you got um, all these like institutions that produce people. You know, let's be honest, and, and, and it's an unfortunate thing, but most entrepreneurship has to have good support systems and financial backing to be able to take the leap of faith and, and risk entrepreneurship. When I started at 19, I lived at home and I could take the risk, mm -hmm. but there's lots of 19 year olds that don't live at home and have to like go make money to pay rent. They are going to have a much harder time, maybe even impossible time of starting a business. So I think some of it is like socioeconomic in Southern California, you generally are going to have people of a higher socioeconomic status that affords you the opportunity to take entrepreneurial risk, start businesses, fail, do it again, start, you know, you got a lot of rich dads that can help with stuff. So, so that's maybe what it is versus other cities where people are more, you know, blue collar working and cannot afford to take a risk. If, if you're 19 with two kids and paying your own rent, good luck starting a business. It's going to be really hard versus if you're 19 living at home with all your bills paid. So that's maybe one of the reasons that, that, that is, um, Interesting yeah. perspective. Well, let, let's uh, let's finish the show. We're coming up on time um, with a, a related question. I mean, you've been doing this for a while. You've gotten to, to 50 employees. You have great entrepreneurial journey so far. And I, I give you a lot of, of uh, commendation for that. If you were advising new entrepreneur today, what, what were the key pieces of advice you would have for them? Um, one is start, like go to market immediately and start. Don't, I, I don't like waiting for like the perfect product, the perfect packaging, the perfect right. this, because what you think is perfect packaging, when you go to market and try to sell it to 50 customers, you'll realize that you were wrong and that you actually should have done this with the packaging and that the customers didn't want that. So I'm always an uh, eager believer of go to market quickly, even when the product's not even ready and try to sell it because you're gonna learn a lot of feed, you're gonna get a lot of feedback that's gonna help you make the product better, uh, you know, right away. I'll give you an example. When we started this business with the whole eyelash mascara thing, we started approaching brands and saying, hey, you know, we'll help you control Amazon, but we wanna be your exclusive distributor. And there were some brands that started to say, I've got a $20 million business selling direct to Amazon. I'm never gonna shift it over to you but I want your help in helping me clean up the market of everybody else. Can you do this for me as a service? 
And then we we pivoted and you know today we have a nice uh, book of recurring business that's brands that pay us a monthly retainer to help keep their products controlled mm -hmm. on Amazon. But that happened because we were listening to the customer and adapting and pivoting. If we were you know pigheaded and would have said no, sorry, we only sell your product, you know, good, then we mm -hmm. wouldn't have built up that business. So always go to where the customer is is my my first advice because that's where you learn the most and, and you can actually do something with, and then just start, right? Like don't wait for the perfect packaging, perfect version of the product, the, you know, all that, uh, just, just start and, you know, make, make it happen. And then the other thing is, um, you know, diagnose well, like really die. Sometimes you got to dive really deep into your, a little later when the business is a little more built up, I'd say you got to dive in sometimes a little deeper into the business and, and go to, exactly where the rubber meets the road and solve issues that maybe uh, uh, are not getting solved or being overlooked or whatever's happening. And sometimes that's a, sometimes that's a, you know, a founder thing, or sometimes it's a technical thing, or sometimes it's an engineering thing if you're a software. And so only, you know, you or very specific people on the team might know exactly what's going on. Um, the other thing is hire, hire quickly as well. Like don't, don't keep doing a job for too long. You should be consistently doing a new job. If you're not doing a new job yourself as a founder, an entrepreneur in a business, every six months, something's wrong. Mm. Like if you're a bakery and you're baking for 10 years, something's wrong. You're, you're, you're going to be baking another 20 years if you're the baker, right? But just keep every six months, I think you need to be shifting what your job really is and doing different things that the business needs. Yeah, great, great perspective. Well, William, thank you so much for joining me. Congrats on Amazia and, and the success you're having and uh, excited to, to see where this goes in 2021 and beyond. So thank, thank you again for joining. Thanks, Kerry. Thanks for having me. And good luck. Anytime you want to talk again about Amazon or entrepreneurship or business, I love these kind of chats that they're actually one of my favorite parts of, of being in business. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Operate Podcast. If you like this conversation, as a favor to me, you can rate us, review us, or subscribe, or tell your friends. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Operate Podcast. Until next week, get out there and operate.